I am here today with my friend Asna Mira, and I met Asna in Northfield, where we both went to college, Carleton College. And I'm so excited for Asna to be here today. She was one of the first Black students at Carleton College. She was the first Black woman to report for the Wall Street Journal. And her story is really relevant to what's happening for so many of us today. You're listening to Courageous Wordsmith, episode 44. This podcast presents conversation with and for real-life creatives on how we find and keep walking our unique paths. I'm your host, Amy Halberg. Welcome to my world. Today I'm talking with Asna Amira, who, as the first black woman in several places, has a lot to say about race in America. Hey, Asna, how are you doing? I'm good today. How are you? I'm great. I'm really excited to talk with you. You and I have been talking about doing this for a while now. Let's talk about Northfield. Let's talk about Carleton. How'd you get there? My dad decided that that's where I was going to go. As it turns out, he, he was a dentist, died a couple years ago. This was a town that he had researched. Northfield was a town he had researched carefully, thought it was a great place. Um, but I think decided to move to Milwaukee instead because it wouldn't have been possible for a dark-skinned black dentist to make a living in 1947. And I only found this out years later, but he decided Carleton was the perfect school. It was uh, equal to the Ivy League without the, the class system and the fraternities and sororities. So even though I applied several other places that I wanted to go to get the heck out of the Midwest, when I was, when I was accepted, that was that. I'm very glad in, in many ways. It, it was a perfect school for me, but at that time, a perfect school for any black person was a non-concept. There, there wasn't any such thing, perhaps Howard or someplace like that. So help us to understand the context. I mean, so there weren't black students at Carleton before you got there. Is that right? There were three, but they weren't really black. They were mixed, and they were wealthy Republican families, and they fit in pretty well, it seemed like, and they seemed very different from the dozen or so that came in in 1966. And was that a concerted effort on the college's part? Yes, it absolutely was. All those were scholarship students. It was, which of the programs it was, I don't recall, but they had made a assertive attempt to bring a number of black people there as opposed to what it had been like before is that these other three just happened to be qualified to be there and and race wasn't considered in any way. As a matter of fact, the 12 of us was such a shock that we had to set up our own guild to try and run interference between the two races because the cultural shock was so great both on the white students' part and black students' part, that it needed mediating. These identity clubs are, you know, African-American students and Caribbean students. And But I wrote a story about it for the, the Tribune at the time because it was the first such organization, and they brought in a black guy to stand over it to try to represent our interests at the school. 
they were welcoming you into their world, but they were not really prepared to understand what it meant to be in a black world, right? I mean, you were a history major. A history major. I think I gave you that example of uh, being in my second semester of American history. And I confronted the professor near the end of the term and asked him why he had not so much as mentioned black people or Native Americans or any other immigrants for that matter. And he told me that it was because, well, they never did anything. I was astonished at this, but he was astonished at me asking the questions, the question because given his background of prep schools in Princeton, he had no context to even ever think about blacks or Native Americans or immigrants. That was one place that really inspired you to start digging into your own background. And as I recall, you you actually took on some leadership at Carleton even as an undergraduate. I started the first course in African-American history, obviously with two professors who felt as I did that this had been completely ignored, unexplored territory and that we needed to cover it. And that course still exists today. That wasn't your first time being the first Black person. And I think it's important to say that. Like, so, you know, it wasn't like you got to Carleton and were prepared to take on the white world. That actually started much sooner, yeah? Oh, yes. I was the first and only Black student at uh, my grade school. I moved when I was nine. I was in the fourth grade. So fourth grade through 12th grade, there weren't any other black people there. And white people don't know how to act around a black person. I was either picked on or totally invisible. I was just a non-entity. And I couldn't talk to my parents about it because they would tell me, well, when I was at your age, it was so much worse. And I'm thinking, well, I had no one to talk to about it. I turned into a different person from what I had been at our previous uh, address. There was just no no support. And at that time, Black parents figured the less you knew, again, upper middle class Black parents, the less you knew about the racism out there, the happier you'd be. And I tried to pretend that that was true, but it never was. Your parents moved you from where you lived to a newer neighborhood. They sent you to Carleton. What were they trying to do with all of this? They were trying to make me into a happy, well-adjusted, middle-class Black person who has to act like white people in order to make it. It was a Black version of the white world, and that was the only way to be successful. And my dad was successful that way. I couldn't be because I had no place anywhere. I just didn't fit. I was a congenital other. When I got to Carleton, I was thinking, well, this is more of the same. But it was just an alien environment and issues that were mine as a, as a black female um, were just mine because there were, <laughs> there's nobody else to talk to. And it was invisible, just like racism is invisible. My problems were invisible. And therefore, only my fault. So, I think people should know this. You were an accomplished violinist, an accomplished dancer, an accomplished writer. So 
Was that artistic expression an outgrowth of needing to find a way to be yourself? Or or how do you understand that today? Absolutely. If I hadn't been a writer, I had been writing since, oh, fourth or fifth grade, just as an escape from a parent who had a lot of issues. The violin was her was her violin. She had been an exceptional violinist in her day. When I was interested in music, well, you're going to play violin. So I played violin, but I got good at it and I enjoyed it and played in orchestra and and an award-winning string quartet. When I got to Carlton, though, I kind of let that drop. All of my interests, dancing is just, it's a spiritual thing to me. It's who I am in time and space and what I need to express in time and space. And if I hadn't had that all the way through Carlton, I think I would have gone crazy. But these were the adjustments of a person, myself. I have a lot of mental issues from the way I was raised, only I didn't know what was going on at the time and nobody else did either. And the things that I did to cope were just that. There were things that I did to hang on to the planet. And so by the time you left Carleton, you had found ways to achieve and excel, but you were also feeling a lack within yourself or something that was not being met? Yes. I had a a column in the Milwaukee Journal, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel now. I wrote a music review column in the weekly paper magazine section for several years before I got to Carleton. I was a freelance writer the first two years. That got me an internship at the Wall Street Journal, but I also freelanced for the Minneapolis Tribune. I mean, I was a professional writer and well-regarded. That didn't mean anything because just like Carlton in 1968, the Wall Street Journal was directed by the government to start hiring blacks, and they panicked. They looked around and, with the help of a woman at Carlton, discovered my bylines and thought, oh, my God, we got somebody here. But then you get there and you show up at, at a at a board meeting and they ask you where the coffee is and why you're late with it. I mean, and the reason that the Wall Street Journal did not want to hire women or blacks is because they can't be taken seriously by Wall Street. And of course, I wasn't. I'd go to show up to interview somebody, and they'd call to make sure I wasn't some imposter pretending to be a Wall Street Journal reporter. This was my day-to-day experience. Again, who do I talk to about that? You want to be taken seriously for what you can do, but just the attrition of being a, a 19-year-old black girl from the Midwest working Wall Street was a challenge. So when people wonder why it is that companies, organizations cannot find and maintain qualified Black people. They can find them, but they don't know where to look, and they have no idea how to maintain them. If you've never known a Black person, first of all, and have no idea what it's like growing up as an other, how could you possibly know how to make things any more workable? This is what people are having deep discussions about now, 50 years later. Um, But if you haven't ever stepped outside of your own persona and tried to imagine what life is like, and if you're not 
interested enough, I was watching an interview of a woman. She was a Trump supporter, and she was talking about how she had stopped watching Fox because they have no idea what's going on. She said, well, Fox was what she used to watch, but when they started covering all this George Floyd stuff, I'm not interested in that, she said. She Then she went to these new, further right outlets that are cropping up to, to tell lies. That's about how aware the so-called uh, captains of industry and people were. They didn't know anything about us. Couldn't cared less, except as we were following their example. Right. So as long as you behaved in a certain way that didn't make any use of your actual unique blackness, any of the perspective you might bring to the situation, that was fine. But once once that came into the picture, it became problematic. Yeah, you were either invisible or you were a problem. And if you wanted to do decent work, you had to stay invisible. And of course, you're not a very good invisible person. You have so much brilliance and so much, like, this is my, this is my thinking. Like, you and I have had so many conversations where you're so forthcoming on so many things. And I love to talk to you because you have strong insights. So to just quash that down must have been rather soul killing. It was. It was. And you didn't last at the Wall Street Journal. No, I did not. I had a a dear friend who was a, a superior reporter and was known for, you know, dipping into controversial stuff. And he, um, he had a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized. And I remember I was uh, subletting his apartment while he was uh, hospitalized. And when he was finally let out, he uh, committed suicide, jumping off the roof of his apartment. This is an extraordinarily intelligent man. And what was bothering him, I really don't know. But they let me go because I was so closely tied to him and they thought that I'd do the same thing. Now, how do you make that kind of a leap? I don't know. But they don't have to explain that to a black woman. So you've lived through a lot of things. I mean, from that time, you've moved a lot. You've lived north. You've lived south. You've lived a lot of places. And I would say have done a lot of investigation into who you are as a result of these experiences. So if somebody were to meet you today, who would you tell them that you are? I am a spiritual, eternal being. And I'm in this particular time and space dimension as a Black person. But I began researching my indigenous roots, the African ones, the Native American ones, and the Celtic ones, just to get a better idea of who I am in this life and what do I need to learn from this one to go to move on to uh, reuniting with the creator. And most people don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. <laughs> Big things. It has given me insights and allowed me to stay sane enough to function because I've always seen the insanities in our society and was made to feel like I was crazy because I wasn't part and parcel of them. But once I realized that I'm really not the crazy one there, um, I can step back, not judge people, not call people names, not relate to people by their race or their religion or their roles in life or their limitations. 
you know, I've done the hero's journey on my own limitations and my own things that don't fit for me. Not, you know, mm-hmm. we've been told the American dream was, you know, you follow the rules, you go to school, you get a good job, you get married, you maintain your bank account, you're nice to people, and go to church on Sunday and do all these things and you, you, you'll succeed. That's hogwash. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked for a certain set of people. But up to a point, those same people today during COVID are not doing it successfully anymore. You've got middle-class people in the food lines. They don't know what happened. I think that's an interesting point that you and I have talked about, that because you've had these hard times, you actually are faring pretty well now, all things considered, because this isn't a surprise to you but it is a surprise to a lot of white people. Yes, it is. The only people who are feeling comfortable in 2020 are that 1% of the top 1% of the economic ladder. And those of us who've had to take this journey step by step and realize that if there's something wrong, it's not out there. It's in here. It's inside. And, I have to fix it. If I have a problem, I can't go to the government. Government doesn't want to do anything for anybody, but for for black people and Latinos and Asians and other minorities. It's assumed we're going to vote for Democrats or or whatever. We're an assumed voting block, but and now people are, I think, beginning to realize that this sense of entitlement they had by just following the rules of the American dream. That's been completely wiped off the blackboard. And Hmm. we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter whether you think because you've always followed the rules and you have a bank account and things are going your way that they always will. The other nine-tenths of the world knows that's not life. You don't have any control over the chaos out there. The only control you have is on the interior, and we don't teach people to do that. So yeah, you were you were actually mentioning something you'd read about this. Um, a, this was predicted that something like this would happen, that we'd get to a point where people would panic and that this was entirely predictable. It certainly was. A well-known Black female psychiatrist named Dr. Frances Press Welsing, what she's saying is that our society is steeped in racism. It's carried out via racist institutions. There is no doubt about that, but the thing that was going to change and draw things to a real head was the fact that when the number of colored people, and I mean not just blacks, but Latinos, Asians, others, is greater than the mass of white people or people who see themselves as white and feel entitled because of that, that that fear was going to explode. And it's reaching near civil war proportions right now because we elected someone who's taken out all the stops. Before, your average citizen wasn't going to sit around and make racist remarks or be out in the street demonstrating with tiki torches and, and whatnot. And of course, we have the internet. Everybody's entitled to their opinion and everybody's opinions are out there. And there are mobs in the street and governors are being threatened with kidnapping and 
GOP people who speak up are getting death threats. So, I mean, that cat's out of the bag, but she saw that in 1991 or 92. So now that that's coming to pass, what do you think is possible because people like me have had to see this, have had to grapple with this, and because it's landed on our doorstep? What, what does this make possible? Well, it makes possible the fact that the things that I've been pointing out for years that nobody wanted to hear anything about are the news headlines every day. And I guess there are people like yourself, like people I know, who are saying, who am I in all this? What do I need to do for myself to function, but also for the nation to function? Because it's being shot full of holes right now by the outgoing president. Mm-hmm. And asking questions like, okay, with this kind of a polarized divide, mm-hmm. where do we go from here? But it's really something as simple as being able to listen to what other people's experiences are. Everybody is an other in some sense. If we could learn to listen, because if we can talk to people about things that are in common as human beings, there was a group that was in the New York Times that was trying to figure out, knowing that we have to talk to even the craziest MAGA hat people out there, they're still Americans, they're here, they're expressing their viewpoints, mm-hmm. they're very, very fearful, and if you attack any of, you know, on the basis of that fear or your dislike of what they're doing, we're putting up more walls. Whereas if you can just get them to talk about something that you share, I'm worried about such and such. Well, I am too. You know, it's possible to have a conversation. It's possible to have relationships with people who are diametrically opposed. One of my great friends and advisors down in Atlanta, Georgia, who was um, an avowed racist, she said, you know, (laughs) I, I can't stand Asians, and I don't like you black people, and you got an education, and I didn't, so I resent you. But she helped save my life. Oh, yeah. And she was dedicated to that. And any time of the day that I'd call, she was there. And it was not pleasant to have her make her racist remarks and poke at me about certain things that she knew were loaded for me that was the price i had to pay for her assistance and i still you know love and respect her to this day i've lost track of her but this is all just to say that saying that you're not racist but you're concerned about those people that's the loudest racist voice i hear everyone white in this nation is schooled on how to be one from the time they're born So let me ask you this, because you've mentioned Minnesota, which is incredibly white. You mentioned George Floyd. You've mentioned Georgia. And it seems to me very interesting that at the current moment, Minnesota was where people finally had to pay attention to, oh, it's not just Georgia, it's Minnesota. Racism exists. And it's not just, and and now as we record this, it's, it's December 5th and we're waiting on the runoffs in Georgia and Georgia might be the state that puts us on the path 
to change. So what does that say to you that those are the places where the change is coming out of? Well, in Georgia, when when I was there, when I would see some just blatant discrimination, I'd, I'd ask the black people involved, why do you put up with that? And they'd say, it's just the way it is, always been that way, can't do anything about it. Well, in that 15 years, black women down there have been doing something about it. Asian too, they've been organizing, they've been making people aware of what's available via the political system. And they're stepping up and making some differences. And I'm sure they're largely responsible for Biden's win. And and I came back here in 2006 because I couldn't make a move to do anything. I was in grad school and I had to, to leave because I couldn't get it done given the amount of harassment I got for my Yankee accent and being a black female. And I figured I came back for a Carlton reunion and decided to stay because felt safe. Nobody was trying to run me down at the street corner. And it took a while for me to realize that it was just a different flavor of racism. It's more sophisticated. Minnesota nice means just that. You smile at everybody, including black people, and you don't ever get to know one. Even people that are educated, they're progressive democratic liberal type people but here's the entitlement part because of all that they think they're better than you they're smarter than you they have more money than you and what that means is you don't count do you think there's a fear at the root of that yes okay so what's the fear well the expression that i always heard growing up was this is not a fair country. In order to succeed, you have to be twice as good as any white person in order to even get your foot in the door. What I learned was, fortunately, that's not difficult. Since we've always had to do it, we're ready. So I, I see what I'm looking at now, but the minute I started to bring up, hey, you and I are not the same, I'm black, and that means I've had these experiences. I know American history. I know black history, and I know the two of them together. And I've been in situations where people had lots of initials after their names for their degrees who had no history whatsoever, didn't know anything about anything that had anything to do with race. Absolutely nothing. So if there was something that gives you hope at this moment, that this moment is somehow different, what is it? It's that no matter how difficult it is, and it's always difficult because nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to take the hero's journey. Um, the, the first step you get in that cycle is to accept the call. And most of us won't accept the call. But because of the events of the last year, Many people are realizing that the framework of the American dream that they were raised on, it's broken. It's not there. And where do we go from here? And it isn't political. It isn't getting the, the right job or, or working yourself to death. We have to look within, find out what it is that's important to us in life, and talk to people about their version of that. 
it's it's not fun for a black person to listen to a racist go on and on and on about their set of problems. I already know. I've been watching it all my life. But the act of listening is an act of kindness. It's an act of love. And those of us that know how to do it, because we've been doing it for a long time, need to really step up. There's a lot of people out there who might respond to it if it was ever offered talk to them but we can't do it from the viewpoint of well i'm better than you we have different needs we have different responses to that but it's really rather satisfying to be able to communicate with another human being on the things that really matter thank you so much for being here with me asna i really appreciate it and i hope you'll come back absolutely i'd be glad to thanks for listening to courageous wordsmith Today's episode featured Asna Amira. You can read about her in my show notes. And my editor is the talented Will Kui. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help it thrive and grow organically. Please subscribe right on this page. Share with friends and sign up for True Lines, my letter for real life creatives. Please and thank you for your support of all kinds. You can learn more about me and my community for creative writers at CourageousWordsmith.com. I'm Amy Halberg, and until we meet again, travel safely.